Chapter Five of the Ranchman by Charles Alden Seltzer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The unexpected. The train pulled out again presently, and the water tank and the cut were rapidly left in the rear. Taylor returned to the smoking room and resumed his seat. And while the girl looked out of the window, some men of the train crew removed the body of the train robber and obliterated all traces of the fight. And Carrington and Parsons, noting the girl's abstractedness, again left her to herself. It had been the girl's first glimpse of a man in cowboy raiment, and, as she reflected, she knew she might have known Taylor was an unusual man. However, she knew it now. Cursory glances at drawings she had seen made her familiar with the type but the cowboys of those drawings had been magnificently arrayed in leather chaparrales, usually fringed with spangles and with long roweled spurs, magnificent wide brims, also bespangled, and various other articles of personal adornment, bewildering and awe-inspiring. But this man, though undoubtedly a cowpuncher, was minus the magnificent raiment of the drawings and paradoxical as it may seem the absence of any magnificent trappings made him seem magnificent but she was not so sure that it was the lack of those things that gave her that impression he did not bulge in his cowboy clothing it fitted him perfectly she was sure it was he who gave magnificence to the clothing anyway she was certain he was magnificent and her eyes glowed. She knew, now that she had seen him in clothing to which she was accustomed, and which she knew how to wear, that she would have been more interested in him yesterday had he appeared before her arrayed as he was at this moment. He had shown himself capable, self-reliant, confident. She would have given him her entire admiration had it not been for the knowledge that she had caught him eavesdropping. That action almost damned him in her estimation. It would have completely and irrevocably condemned him had it not been for her recollection of the stern, almost savage interest she had seen in his eyes while he had been listening to Carrington and Parsons. She knew, because of that expression, that Carrington and Parsons had been discussing something in which he took a personal interest. She had not said so much to Carrington but her instinct told her, warned her, gave her a presentiment of impending trouble. That was what she had meant when she had told Carrington she had seen fighting in Taylor's eyes. Taylor confined himself to the smoking compartment. The Negro porter, with pleasing memories of generous tips and a grimmer memory to exact his worship, hung around him, eager to serve him, and to engage him in conversation. Once he grinningly mentioned the incident of the cast-off clothing of the night before. I ain't mentioning it, boss, not at all. I ain't giving you them dudes till you asked for them. You've done took me by surprise, boss. You sure did. I might near caved when you shoved that gun under my nose. I sure did, boss. I don't want to have nothing to do with your gun, boss. I sure don't. She go pop, and I wouldn't be here no more. 
I didn't recognize you in those heathen clothes you had on yesterday, boss. I minds you with those duds on. I knows you. You're Squint Taylor of Dawes. I've seen you on that big black horse of yourn, a prancing and a prancing through the town. More than once I've seen you, but I didn't know you in them heathen clothes yesterday, boss. Deed I didn't. Later, the porter slipped into the compartment. For a minute or two, he fussed around the room, setting things in order, meanwhile chuckling to himself. Occasionally, he would cease his activities long enough to slap a knee with the palm of a hand, with which movement he would seem to be convulsed with merriment, and then he would resume work, chuckling audibly. For a time, Taylor took no notice of his antics, but they assailed his consciousness presently, and finally he asked, "'What's eating you, George?' The query was evidently just what George had been waiting for, for now he turned and looked at Taylor, his face solemn, but a white gleam of mirth in his eyes belaying the solemnity. "'Tips is coming easy for George this morning,' he said. "'They sure is. No trouble at all. If a man wants to get tips, all he has to be is a dictionary. <laughs> so you're a dictionary, huh? Well... Explain the meaning of this, and he tossed a silver dollar to the other. The dollar in hand, George tilted his head sideways at Taylor. How on earth you know I got something to tell you? How do I know I've got two hands? By looking at them, boss. Well, that's how I know you've got something to tell me, by looking at you. The porter chuckled. I reckon it's worth a dollar to have a young lady interested in you, he told himself in a confidential voice without looking at Taylor. Yes, sir, it sure is worth a dollar. He slapped his knee delightedly. That young lady a heap interested in you, peers like. While ago, she pens me in a corner of the platform. Porter, who's that man in the smoking compartment, that cowboy? What's his name and where does he live? I hesitates, cause I didn't want to betray no secrets and scratch my head. Then she popped a half a dollar into my hand, and I told her you are Squintin' Taylor, and that you own the Arrow Ranch not far from Dawes, and she thanked me and go away grinning. And the young lady, George, do you know her name? The men she's traveling with calls her Marion, boss. He peered intently at Taylor for signs of interest. He saw no such signs, and after a while, noting that Taylor seemed preoccupied and was evidently no longer aware of his presence, he slipped out noiselessly. At 9.30, Taylor, looking out of the car window, noted the country was growing familiar. Fifteen minutes later, the porter stuck his head in between the curtains, saw that Taylor was still absorbed, and withdrew. At 9.55, the porter entered the compartment. We'll be in Dawes in five minutes, boss, he said. I've towed your baggage to the door. The porter withdrew, and a little later, Taylor got up and went out into the aisle. At the far end of the car, near the door, he saw Marion Harlan, Parsons, and Carrington. He did not want to meet them again after what had occurred in the diner, and he cast a glance toward the door behind him, 
hoping that the porter had carried his baggage to that end of the car. But the platform was empty. His suitcase was at the other end. He slipped into a seat on the side of the train that would presently disclose him a view of Dawes's depot and of Dawes itself, leaned an elbow on the window sill and waited. Apparently the three persons at the other end of the car paid no attention to him, but glancing sidelong once, he saw the girl throw an interested glance at him. And then the air brakes hissed. He felt the train slowing down, and he got up and walked slowly toward the girl and her companions. At about the same instant, she and the others began to move toward the door, so that when the train came to a stop, they were on the car platform by the time Taylor reached the door. And by the time he stepped out upon the car platform, the girl and her friends were on the station platform, their baggage piled at their feet. Dawes's depot was merely a roofless platform, and there was no shelter from the glaring white sun that flooded it. The change from the subdued light of the coach to the shimmering, blinding glare of the sun on the wooden planks of the platform affected Taylor's eyes, and he was forced to look downward as he alighted. And then, not looking up, he went to the baggage car and pulled his two prisoners out. Looking up as he walked down the platform with the two men, he saw a transformed Dawes. The little frame station building had been a red, dingy blot beside the glistening rails that paralleled the town. It was now gaily draped with bunting, red, white, and blue, which he recognized as having been used on the occasion of the town's anniversary celebration. A big American flag topped the ridge of the station. Other flags projected from various angles of the frame. Most of the town's other buildings were replicas of the station in the matter of decorations. Festoons of bunting ran here and there, from building to building. Broad bands of it were stretched across the fronts of the other buildings. Gay loops of it crossed the street, suspended to form triumphal arches. Flags, wreaths of laurel, Japanese lanterns, and other paraphernalia of the decorator's art were everywhere. Down the street near the Castle Hotel, Taylor saw transparencies, but he could not make out the words on them. He grinned, for certainly the victor of yesterday's election was outdoing himself. He looked into the face of a man who stood near him on the platform, who answered his grin. Our new mayor is celebrating in style, huh? he said. Right, declared the man. He was about to ask the man which candidate had been victorious, though he was certain it was Neil Norton. When he saw Marion Harlan standing a little distance from him, smiling at him. It was a broad and personal smile, such as one citizen of a town might exchange with another when both are confronted with the visible evidence of political victory, and Taylor responded to it with one equally impersonal. Whereat the girl's smile faded, and her gaze, still upon Taylor, became speculative. Its quality told Taylor that he should not presume upon the smile. Taylor had no intention of presuming anything, not even the porter's story of the girl's interest in him 
had affected him to the extent of fatuous imaginings. A woman's curiosity, he supposed, had led her to inquire about him. He expected she rarely saw men arrayed as he was, and as he had been arrayed the day before. The girl's gaze went from Taylor to the streets of the immediate vicinity of the station, and for the first time since alighting on the platform, Taylor saw a mass of people near him. Looking sharply at them, he saw many faces in the mass that he knew. They all seemed to be looking at him, and, with the suddenness of a stroke, came to him the consciousness that there was no sound, that silence, deep and unusual, reigned in Dawes. The train, usually merely stopping at the station and then resuming its trip, was still standing motionless behind him. With a sidelong glance, he saw the train crew standing near the steps of the cars, looking at him. The porter and the waiter, with whose faces he was familiar, were grinning at him. Taylor felt that his own grin, as he gazed around at the faces that were all turned toward him, was vacuous and foolish. He felt foolish, for he knew something had attracted the attention of all these people to him, and he had not the slightest idea what it was. For an instant, he feared that through some mental lapse he had forgotten to remove his dude clothing, and he looked down at his trousers and felt of his shirt to reassure himself. And he gravely and intently looked at his prisoners, wondering if by any chance some practical joker of the town had arranged a train robbery for his special benefit. If that were the explanation, it had been a grim hoax, for two men had been killed in the fight. Looking up again, he saw that the grins on the faces of the people around him had grown broader. Several loud guffaws of laughter reached his ears. He looked at Marion Harlan and saw a puzzled expression on her face. Carrington, too, was looking at him, and Parsons, whose smile was a smirk of perplexity. Taylor reddened with embarrassment. A resentment that grew swiftly to angry intolerance seized him. He straightened, squared his shoulders, thrust out his chin, and shoving his prisoners before him, took several long strides across the station platform. This movement brought him close to Marion Harlan and her friends, and his further progress was barred by a man who placed a hand against his chest. This man, too, was grinning. He seized Taylor's shoulders with both hands and looked into his face the grin on his own broad and expanding. "'Welcome home, you old son of a gun,' said the man. His grin was infectious, and Taylor answered it, dropping his suitcase and looking at the other straight in the eye. "'Norton,' he said, "'what in hell is the cause of all this staring at me? Can't a man leave town for a few days and come back without everybody looking at him as though he were a curiosity?' Norton, a tall, slender, sinewy man, with broad shoulders, laughed aloud and deliberately winked at several interested citizens who had followed Taylor's progress across the platform, and who now stood near him, grinning. "'You are a curiosity, man. You're the first mayor of this man's town. Lordy,' he said to the surrounding faces, "'he hasn't tumbled to it yet.' The color left Taylor's face, 
He stared hard at Norton. He gazed in bewilderment at the faces near him. Mayor, he said, why, good Lord, man, I wasn't here yesterday. But your friends were, yelped the delighted Norton. He raised his voice so that it reached far into the crowd on the street. He's sort of fussed up, boys. This honor conferred on him so sudden, but give him time and he'll talk your heads off. He leaned over to Taylor and whispered in his ear, Grin, man, for God's sakes. Don't stand there like a wooden man. They'll think you don't appreciate it. It's the first time I ever saw you lose your nerve. Buck up, man. Why, they simply swamped Danforth. Wiped him clean off the map. Norton was whispering more into Taylor's ear, but Taylor could not follow the sequence of it, nor get a coherent meaning out of it. He even doubted that he heard Norton. He straightened and looked around at the crowd that now was pressing in on him, and for the first time in his life he knew the mental panic and the physical sickness that overtakes the man who for the first time faces an audience whose eyes are focused on him. For a bag of gold as big as the mountains that loomed over the distant southern horizon, he could not have said a word to the crowd but he did succeed in grinning at the faces around him. And at that, the crowd yelled. And just before the crowd closed in on him, and he began to shake hands with his delighted supporters, he glanced at Marion Harlan. She was looking at him with a certain sober interest, though he was sure that back in her eyes was a sort of humorous malice, which had, however, a softening quality of admiration and, perhaps, gratitude. His gaze went from her to Carrington. The big man was watching him with a veiled sneer, which, when he met Taylor's eyes, grew open and unmistakable. Taylor grinned broadly at him, for now it occurred to him that he would be able to thwart Carrington's design of getting hold of the reins. His grin at Carrington was a silent challenge and so the other interpreted it, for a sneer grew positively venomous. The girl caught the exchange of glances between them, for Taylor heard him say to Parsons, just before the noise of the crowd drowned her voice, Now I know he overheard you. Meanwhile, the two prisoners were standing near Taylor. Taylor had almost forgotten them. He was reminded of their presence when he saw Keats, the sheriff, standing near him. At just the instant Taylor looked at Keats, the latter was critically watching the prisoners. Keats and Taylor had had many differences of opinion, for the sheriff's official actions had not merited nor received Taylor's approval. Taylor's attitude toward the man had always been that of a good-natured banter, despite the disgust he felt for the man, and now pursuing his customary attitude Taylor called to him. Specimens, huh? Picked them up at Tobin's this morning. They yearned to hold up the train. There were four altogether, but we had to put two out of business. I came pretty near forgetting them. If I hadn't seen you just now, maybe, I would have walked right off and left them here. Take them to jail, Keats. Keats advanced. He met Taylor's eyes, and his lips curved with a sneer. 
Pulling off a little grandstand play, eh? Well, it's a mighty clever idea. First you get elected mayor, and then you come in here, dragging along a couple of mean-looking hombres, and say they tried to hold up the train at Tobin's. It sounds mighty fishy to me. Taylor laughed. He heard a chuckle behind him, and he turned to see Carrington grinning significantly at Keats. Taylor's eyes chilled as his gaze went from one man to the other, for the exchange of glances told him that between the men there was a common interest which would link them together against him. And in the dead silence that followed Keats' words, Taylor drawled, grinning coldly, "'Meaning that I'm a liar, Keats?' His voice was gentle, and his shoulders seemed to droop a little, as though in his mind was a desire to placate Keats. But there were men in Dawes who had seen Taylor work his guns, and these held their breath and began to shove backward. That slow drooping of Taylor's shoulders was a danger signal, a silent warning that Taylor was ready for action, swift and violent. And faces around Taylor whitened as the man stood there facing Keats, his shoulders drooping still lower, the smile on his face becoming one of cold, grim mockery. The discomfiture of Keats was apparent. Indecision and fear were in the set of his head, bowed a little, and a dread reluctance was in his shifting eyes and the pasty white color of his face. It was plain that Keats had overplayed. He had not intended to arouse the latent tiger in Taylor. He had meant merely to embarrass him. Meaning that I'm a liar, Keats? Again, Taylor's voice was gentle, though this time it carried a subtle taunt. Desperately harried, Keats licked his hot lips and cast a sullen glance around at the crowd. Then his gaze went to Taylor's face, and he drew a slow breath. "'I reckon I wasn't meaning just that,' he said. "'Of course,' smiled Taylor. "'That's no way for a sheriff to act. "'Take them in, Keats,' he added, waving a hand at the prisoners. "'It's been so long since the sheriff of this county arrested a man "'that the jail's getting tired, yawning for somebody to get into it.' He turned his back on Keats and looked straight at Carrington. "'Have you got any idea along the sheriff's line?' he asked. Carrington flushed, and his lips went into a sullen pout. He did not speak, merely shaking his head negatively. Keats's glance at Taylor was malignant with hate, and Carrington's sullen, venomous look was not unnoticed by the crowd. Keats stepped forward and seized the two prisoners hustling them away, muttering profanely. And then Taylor was led away by Norton and a committee of citizens, leaving Carrington, the girl, and Parsons alone on the platform. "'Looks like we're going to have trouble lining things up,' remarked Parsons. Danforth? "'You shut up,' snapped Carrington. "'Danforth's an ass, and so are you.'" End of Chapter 5